Good morning. You got me back again. Oh my gosh. Seriously. Uh, yeah, let me start by praying. Father, to thee we do lift our praises. God, help us to see you for who you really are, your grace, your truth, and let that inform us how we treat each other. God, increase our love for you, Lord, because we know that that automatically increases our love for others. And so help us and just be present during this time. Holy Spirit, move and uh, teach me as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, So it's the year 1054 AD. Uh, Christianity has been around for centuries, spreading the message of love and unity and bickering. Despite sharing the same core beliefs, Christians couldn't help but find reasons to disagree And sometimes, like, really disagree. In 1054, there were two major branches of Christianity. The Eastern Church, centered in Constantinople, that's modern-day Turkey, and the Western Church, rooted in Rome. Up until that point, 1054, they had still been the one universal church. But differences had been simmering for centuries over more serious topics like the Holy Spirit and uh, like who had ultimate authority, the Pope in Rome or the Patriarch in Constantinople. Uh, But then also a lot of seemingly very trivial disagreements over the, the right kind of bread for communion, for example, or what the priests wore, or if they had beards or not, the size of their hats. Have you ever seen Eastern Orthodox hats? Okay. If they could marry. So some of these kinds of things. And things came to a head in 1054 when an envoy from the Pope arrived in Constantinople with a list of grievances demanding uh, the Eastern Church submit to Roman authority in all of the things, all of them. Beards, celibacy, uh, Rome wanted unleavened communion bread. The Eastern Church wanted leavened. They wanted unleavened bread one of the biggest reasons was so that the communion would be crispier, so that uh, it would more represent the broken body of Christ when they break it. Interesting. Tempers flared, accusations flew, and boom, excommunication, mutually. Uh, it's called the Great Schism in Church History. Literally, the Pope excommunicated the uh, patriarch, the Eastern Patriarch in Constantinople, and the Patriarch excommunicated the Pope, which excommunication is the ultimate get-out-of-here card. You're, you're not a part of the church. You're not a part of the body of Christ. You're not a Christian. Church is closed. Suspicions deepened. And a once mostly unified faith fractured. And if you know church history, uh, f- you know, fractures and schisms didn't end there. Uh, we're going to continue with unity this week, particularly looking at the problem that we have with dividing with other Christians when we shouldn't, how we sabotage unity. Last week I talked about how we don't divide when we should. In other words, when we stay unified with other so-called Christians that are not Christ-centered, not biblical, I hit on primarily why we tend to do that, 
and how when we divide, we're called to do it in a loving way, not a harsh way. Uh, a little bit more on that later because it, it, it can get complicated, just like this sound right now. It can get complicated, a lot of nuances. So all of this because of Jesus' prayer, not all just because of Jesus' prayer, but once again, Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me, the disciples, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' vision and prayer is that of unity. His followers being unified so that the world will know that he is truly God. Now, I introduced the three levels of belief last week, a classification system for beliefs to help us know, once again, when to divide and when to remain in fellowship with other believers with, who differ on certain things. And so I'm going to go over that again briefly as a continued reference point as we talk about unity. So once again, this was developed, uh, yeah, you got it up there. Once again, this was developed by looking at Paul, um, Paul's letters to the churches, all right? Scripture's our authority here. Taking note of when did Paul divide with other people calling themselves Christians and when he instructed Christians to remain in fellowship with other Christians, even though there were differences in beliefs. And so last week I talked about the center circle, uh, central beliefs of the Christian faith, primarily the gospel. You want me to just use this? I can use this. I don't move. <laughs> Maybe I'll move more if I have this. But Do you want me to just move this? Use this? Okay. Oh, gosh. Oh, no, I'm going to take it off. Okay. Um, so last week, I need to use that. <laughs> we talked about the center circle, central beliefs of the Christian faith, primarily the gospel, along with a few other foundational Things So uh, things that are non-negotiable for Christians, matters or teachings that are extremely clear in Scripture, things Paul divided over. And this week we'll be talking about the two outer circles, persuasions and opinions, and we'll address the problem of us dividing when we shouldn't. So once again, persuasions are beliefs which we've come to based on Scripture, but we can still fellowship with other Christians who have come to different conclusions based on scripture. So these are beliefs which uh, the Bible is not completely clear on. In other words, one verse might suggest a certain view or stance on something, while another verse in a different place might suggest a different view or stance on that thing. Uh, End times prophecy, for example. A lot of different verses suggesting different things, and there's um, symbolism in there. Uh, we are to read Scripture in light of other Scripture and not just selectively uh, selectively read Scripture. And then uh, opinions, the outer circle, go a step further where their beliefs uh, that the Bible is basically silent on or doesn't speak directly to. Uh, for example, how long until Christ returns? Uh, which is the best Bible translation? How many elders should a church have? We know they should have elders. How many? Doesn't speak on that. A lot fits in here. And so the foundational passage that acknowledges these types of beliefs is, is um, 
Romans 14. That's what we'll be in this morning for the most part, especially talking about persuasion-level beliefs, but it can apply to opinions as well. Basically, the whole chapter 14 is awesome, Uh, but for the sake of time, I'll just read some selected verses. So verse 1, chapter, Romans 14, says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That's what these negotiables are, disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person, verse 5, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. And then down to verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 11, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on another, one another. Verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Down to 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. In other words, don't project them on others. The whole chapter is great. I tried to catch a gist of it with these verses. This chapter clearly acknowledges that there are some beliefs that believers can have opposite views on, but that they should remain in fellowship. Basically agree to disagree. Um, The issues that they were having that, that he was likely addressing in this Romans chapter 14 were probably ceremonially clean foods, according to the Jewish law, and possibly the issue of the Sabbath, um, other special days that were observed, which those things would have been really important to those people, really important. But Paul says they take a back seat for the sake of unity. He didn't advise either the forsaking or the following of the customs in question, but rather he was reminding his readers of their proper place. And it's crazy because he even basically says in verse 5 that they should be convinced in their own minds about these things, about these topics and issues. So it's not like he's saying be wishy-washy on them, on these persuasion-level things. He's encouraging rather prayer, study, some decisiveness on these issues. But he says that we need to keep them in their right place and maintain full unity and fellowship with those who differ.
In other words, this means that what determines whether something is a non-negotiable in that center circle and a negotiable is not how strongly you may feel about it. It's not just about being convinced in your own mind, like he says we should be. That's a temptation, though, to just think, okay, wow, I feel so strongly about this. Everyone needs to believe what I believe about this thing. But no, Paul literally instructs with these types of beliefs to, yes, be convinced, but to not project them on others. And yes, obviously, we can have conversations about them, but to not project them on others, like everyone needs to believe this. And so what kind of beliefs are in these persuasion opinion categories? That's a question. Uh, once again, when we, what we talked about last week helps us to know what's not in these categories because they're in the center circle, non-negotiables, things that it's not okay to differ on them. Things like when we add to or take away from the gospel, when we don't call sin, sin, worthy of dividing center circle. And also certain foundational Christian beliefs that are clear in Scripture, like the deity of Christ, for example. Those aren't negotiables. Um, here are just some negotiables that I thought of. There are plenty more. Uh, different, different forms of church government. How we do baptism. The age of the earth. Different end times interpretations. Different parenting styles. A lot of politics fit in the second and third circle, types of worship songs, you know, style that should be sung, which Bible translation to use, how one ought to dress at church. There is actually a ton that fits into these negotiable circles, more than we usually think. And obviously, it's not always simple. It is not always simple which category something fits into, and that's why we have each other. That's why we have the Holy Spirit along with the Word of God in each other, and especially that's why we have the God-ordained roles of elders in local churches and in our church that help on the more complicated matters when there's a dispute in determining really what's negotiable and what's not because it can get, it can get complicated for example, we have parts of the Bible that some think should be taken more literally and not figuratively, or vice versa. Parts of the Old Testament that are just symbolic. Parts that are simply descriptive and not prescriptive. Descriptive meaning for that time alone. Not prescriptive meaning for all time. These kinds of things and issues can come down to our elders and our statements of faith to guide us on those. Another way this all can get complicated is how any given issue that we're working through often has a mix of non-negotiable issues or non-negotiable things and negotiable things. So, for example, <clears throat> what we talked about last week. One of the examples when Paul instructed Christians to divide, 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, once again, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, 
a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. I want to reiterate a couple things. First of all, sexual immorality is just one of many things. Second of all, I want to reemphasize that it's not talking about struggling Christians. It's talking about people claiming to be a Christian but having no conviction of sin. So the non-negotiable in 1 Corinthians 5 here is that there should be some kind of separating from these types of people, some kind of calling them out lovingly. That's the non-negotiable. The negotiable, though, is how that separation looks. You can put the next slide up. Um, This can be really hard especially when the person claiming to be a Christian is close to us or even a family member. Why? Because we're also called to continue to go after them and reach out to them and love them. And there's hope for the wanderer. God can move and God can break through with them. And so we're called to do that And so the non-negotiable is some kind of separating from them should take place, center circle. The negotiable, though, is how that separation looks. Because the reality is that how it looks will be different from scenario to scenario. For example, some Christians take the quote, do not eat with them and determine that the present day equivalent of that is mainly denying church membership. Since Paul was talking to the church at Corinth and not necessarily instructing individual Christians to not eat with individual people in their lives. So not talking about severing ties with people in our individual lives, but more talking about as an organized church, not accepting someone into membership. Or another Christian may take that quote, you do uh, do not eat with them in 1 Corinthians 5, more literal and apply that in their individual life too. I've heard of that too. The key, though, that we're talking about this morning is being careful to keep the issues in their right circles. And so 1 Corinthians 5, for example, to divide in some way is a non-negotiable. Center circle. But how one divides is up for interpretation. We've got to be careful to do this because of our propensity to divide in our sin nature when we shouldn't with others. So what does that look like to divide when we shouldn't? The obvious way is like church splits, right? That that can look like. But I'm going to be talking about a more insidious way that we divide when we shouldn't. And it has everything to do with what Paul is addressing in Romans 14, judgmentalness. Which you can struggle with that and go to the same church all your life. Judgmentalness, verses 3 to 4, 10, 13. Because division isn't just when we physically leave, it's also when we don't have this amazing spirit of unity and closeness with our fellow family members, brothers in Christ, as as uh, Matt was talking about in his announcements. So not necessarily talking about literally dividing and leaving churches, 
but walking around maybe with an air of superiority because of what we think we know and others don't. Walking around looking down on other Christians because of their stances or opinions on negotiable matters or matters of speculation. Like simply with being somewhat of a saturated Christian community, we have got to be aware of these temptations. If we are regularly judging and looking down on other Christians for their different views on something, we might be moving those views to the center circle without knowing it. If we're always looking or thinking about our differences rather than our commonalities as believers, if we're always evaluating with a critical spirit, we might be emphasizing negotiables over non-negotiables and moving them to the center circle without knowing it. <clears throat> if we're always thinking about or talking about a specific doctrine or opinion, always emphasizing it, and trying to get others to fall in line with us, we might be moving that to the center circle without knowing it. If we're always looking at things primarily through a political lens, then we might be moving that to the center circle without knowing it. And when we do this, when we move negotiables into that non-negotiable circle, we are dividing at least in spirit when we shouldn't be dividing. And scripture is clear on the term for that. And he calls it divisiveness. And Paul speaks directly and authoritatively to that. Next verse. Titus 3.10, amongst other places, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Paul was not unfamiliar with people calling themselves Christians but then being divisive. And a synonymous term with that is quarrelsome. Quarrelsome people is another way he describes them. And he says in multiple places in his letters that they have no place, no place in Christian community. Where unity is supposed to be prioritized for the sake of witness. Like having opinions is good and even encouraged. And they, and they can stoke a lot of worship for the Lord. Like, I love um, speculating what heaven is going to be like in the new earth, for example, or, or predestination and being chosen in the elect. Like, I love that stuff. But if we're not self-controlled with our opinions and persuasions, they can sabotage Jesus' prayer for unity. The Pharisees were like this. And this is what Jesus had to say about them. He said they, quote, strain out the gnat only to swallow a camel. In other words, they were so hyper-focused on right theology about every little thing, every little gnat, that they swallowed the camel of divisiveness and judgmentalness and self-righteousness. So we must beware of this temptation. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul is not saying be of one mind, believe the same thing about everything. It's impossible for him to be saying that, even based on Romans 14. He's saying be focused on the non-negotiables that are rock solid. Keep everything else in their proper place. Our opinions, our theological persuasions, our speculations, keep them in their proper place. We live in an unprecedented time where everyone thinks, you know, I read a, I read a book or I listen to a podcast, so I'm an expert, right? I know I'm tempted to this too. Or I read it on the internet, so I'm an expert on parenting or politics or theological issues. We think we're an expert because of the ease of accessibility to information. And it's creating a lot of divisiveness. Got dry mouth today. But I've also had the privilege of seeing glimpses of deep Christian unity throughout the years. Unity that's grounded in the truth, all right? In the unchanging word of God, but also filled with love and empathy and, yes, diversity of opinions, different interpretations on some of the things going on in our society, but nothing compromising, nothing compromising the non-negotiables. And what I've seen when, when this type of Christian unity was happening were non-Christians noticing and being drawn in and coming to Christ. The Lord adding to our number those being saved. That's what happens when there's unity in Philippians 2, 2, one-mindedness, Jesus' prayer in John 17, unity so that the world knows, non-Christians know who, Jew, who Jesus who, who he really is. That's the kind of unity that I want to fight for. And once again, we all need accountability with this. Like we all need to be checking ourselves. I think in some ways the temptation gets Stronger as you get older, we're all at risk. And I thought of a few underlying reasons we're tempted to divide over things that shouldn't be divided over. So maybe it's gaining a sense of significance or pride from being right. Or thinking you know something that others don't. Or maybe it's the, idea, the idol of control. Like, we want control over all these negotiable minor issues. Or maybe it's an insecure, exaggerated fear of a slippery slope. Like, yes, we need to be aware of a slippery slope happening. Amen. But not so afraid of it that it all makes us hypersensitive and divide, at least in spirit, over some of the smallest things like an overactive immune system attacking healthy tissue as well. 
Look, there's a lot going on in our society. And yes, we need to be, we need to be a healthy immune system, if you want to call it that. But there's also such a thing as an overactive immune system, physically and spiritually and socially, attacking healthy tissue too. I like this illustration. If all our theological beliefs are all in one body of water held up by a dam, then when one belief gets threatened, it's like a hole gets punched in the dam. All our beliefs are threatened. We must have different categories like Paul had and have only the non-negotiable doctrines behind the dam and never let that dam be compromised. Negotiable beliefs outside the dam, essentials inside. If all of our beliefs are inside the dam, then we will be hypersensitive, insecure, and probably overreact. And once again, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't know what we believe about these persuasions opinion levels. They can be really important things but we can't let them divide us literally or in spirit with judgmentalness. And so back to the two problems that we've addressed last week and this week. Um, One, we don't divide when we should. And two, we divide with other Christians when we shouldn't. And so the question is, which of these do you struggle with more? Which, Which of these are you more inclined to? Like for me, I'm more inclined to the first one. I'm tempted to do the second one as well, but I'm more inclined to do the first one, which are you more inclined to do? It's very wise to know how your sin nature is working within you. Like so many aspects of our Christian walks, the power to overcome both these errors is only found in God, and especially the Holy Spirit. This is awesome. Um, First, 2 Timothy 1 This verse can address both of these errors. He says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Holy Spirit gives us power and boldness to reject timidity and separate from other people calling themselves Christians when we're called to. The Holy Spirit can give us that. And to do it in love. If you see that the Holy Spirit gives love too. And then the Holy Spirit gives us self-discipline. To keep our opinions and persuasions in their proper place in order to prioritize unity. One of the tri- next, uh, next verse, one of the Trinitarian roles of the Holy Spirit is maintaining unity. The Holy Spirit. Um, verse 4 Verse 3 of Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, this is a cool Trinitarian verse, different roles for different persons of the Trinity. Um, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship or unity of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Like we have the opportunity to stand out for Jesus in the midst of a world and society of divisiveness right now. And I just want to say that I consider myself 
Like, so privileged to be serving in this church. Uh, and a part of this body of believers. Because this church and, and our elders in so many ways give room for unity to happen. Like we are firm in the non-negotiables and give freedom with the negotiables. Um, you can check out our statement of faith statements on various issues. And what happens when we have unity as Christ followers is Jesus' prayer in John 17. And you see it in Acts 2 where there was unprecedented unity in their community. What happened, it says that many were added to their number daily. Like the world sees and then knows Jesus is God in large part through our unity. So let me pray to finish up here. God, um, Lord, once again, we pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be aware if we are dividing with others, if we're being judgmental and keeping your spirit of unity from happening. If we're grieving your spirit, please show us, Lord. God, I pray that you would just mend relationships in the name of Jesus God, help us to see if we're overemphasizing wrong things or good things, but we're overemphasizing in our lives. God, help us to have courage to check others in love. And Lord, we do pray that more would come to know you through our witness, that we would more and more exemplify your character to a lost and dying world. Thank you for saving us, Lord, for giving us the promise that we can know that we're saved in you alone, not based on what we've done. Thank you. We praise you this morning and uh, be with us with our meeting uh, in about an hour. And thanks for the lunch, Lord. Bless those who prepared it and did all the work to uh, make it happen. In Jesus' name, amen.